Grab your Bibles and open them up to Ephesians chapter 3. Oswald Chambers, the great evangelist, once said this. He said, we tend to use prayer as a last resort, but God wants it to be our first line of defense. We pray when there's nothing else we can do, but God wants us to pray before we do anything at all. That stings a little bit, doesn't it? You see, prayer has a way of revealing what really matters most to us. It has a way of exposing the things we treasure and the things we value most. You ever have a friend who only talks to you when they need something? Nobody wants to be that kind of friend, but maybe we're all a little bit like that friend when it comes to our relationship with Jesus. We tend to go to him, but typically it's when we want something or we need something. We come to him with a long list of I wants and I needs. Perhaps it's been a long time since you simply went to God out of sheer delight and out of sheer desire for fellowship and communion with him. Prayer is an incredible thermometer for the health of your relationship with God. If you never pray, you really don't know God. That might sound harsh at first, but let me just ask you to consider this for a second. Can you imagine somebody went up to you and said, Ian, how's your relationship with your wife, Sarah? And I said, you know, we really don't talk at all, but you know, other than that, it's going pretty well. It's not great. See, prayer reveals the health of our relationship with God, and it is also the means to accessing the power of God in our lives. Our prayer lives and the success of living the Christian life are deeply connected. In fact, you could say that the success of our lives is not ultimately about what great work we can do for God, but rather what great work God can do in and through us. So if we are going to move forward in the Christian life with any degree of success, or any degree of accomplishment for the things of the Lord, if we're going to move forward in his great power, we must first be reminded to go back to our greatest work, the work of prayer. Paul shows us how to do this this morning, and he does so in such a beautiful way. You see, the book of Ephesians can be split right down the middle. The first three chapters of the book of Ephesians, Paul has been laying out for us a theological and doctrinal foundation of all that God has done and all that God is and the riches of his grace that he has lavished upon us. He's unfolded the beauties of the gospel, the unity of the church, the reconciling plan of God to redeem all of the universe back to himself. And in Chapter 4, he begins to turn the corner into now practically, what does this doctrine mean for you? How does this flesh out in your life on a day-to-day basis? But right in between that theology and the practical living, it's so interesting that Paul inserts a prayer. You see, it's this prayer that bridges the gap between the knowledge of our doctrine and theology and the ability to live it out with any degree of success for the glory of God. And Paul knows that, and so he wants to bring us back to this place of dependency and prayer and trust in the Lord, and that's exactly what he does for us in verse 14. Look at it. Such a magnificent prayer. Here's what he says. For this reason... I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and earth is named, 
that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. And if there's ever a time for all God's people to say amen, it is here. Paul instructs us on a number of different levels He tells us, in one sense, by his example, why we need to pray. He shows us how to pray, and he tells us specifically what to pray for. The first thing we see in these few verses we're going to look at this morning is this, that Paul first calls us to pray with great humility. This really is the beginning place of all true God-honoring prayer. And Paul begins in verse 14 by saying this, For this reason, look at the posture here of the Apostle Paul. I bow my knees before the Father. Paul is teaching us how we ought to approach God. Kneeling was not a common practice for the Jews in their prayer life. The typical position for a Jew to pray in was standing or moving slowly about. Think of the Wailing Wall, even today in Jerusalem, where the Jews stand at the wall and they have incorporated even this kind of movement back and forth. The idea is to not be distracted from anything else, to have their focus solely pinned to God. But whenever we see somebody kneeling in prayer in the Bible, That individual is demonstrating great humility and a deep emotion before God. This isn't prescribing kneeling, by the way, as the only correct posture for prayer. The Bible actually gives a number of different postures for prayer. It talks about lying prostrate. It talks about praying with holy hands being raised. Posture is a a normal part of our prayer lives. We do things like closing our eyes when we pray. The Bible doesn't prescribe that either. That again, that's a way in which we kind of try to block out all the distractions and try to say to God, God, I, I want my eyes and the eyes of my heart to be fixed solely on you. We hold hands sometimes in prayer when we sit around the dinner table expressing a unity in our prayer, a collective corporate prayer together. You see, posture says something. It communicates something incredibly important, especially when it comes to our approach to God. It communicates deep heart truths, and it also has the potential, by the way, not just to communicate our hearts before God, it actually has the potential to instruct our hearts in how we are approaching God. Let me give you an example of this. Sometimes the the display itself is the thing that God uses to bring us to the right place in our prayer. So to kneel, sometimes when our heart's not in this place of humble submission to God, or we're not in a place of humility in our approach, to actually get on our knees before God is the thing that God uses to tell us and remind us, get low before me, get your face to the ground. But you see, ultimately, it's not the posture of our body that God is primarily concerned about. Though it is important, 
And though I think it's something that we undervalue maybe sometimes in our prayer, really the, the greater concern of God is the posture of our heart towards him. And that's what Paul is expressing here. He's demonstrating the kind of heart we need to have, a heart of humility when we approach God. And so let me just apply this to our prayer lives in three simple ways. The first way is this. Allow God to be working in your prayer life to foster a humble gratitude. A humble gratitude. We see Paul really expressing this here in his own prayer life. The context reminds us that Paul is actually praying with humble gratitude to God. Remember how he begins in verse 14. He says, for this reason. Now, if you're here last week, you'll remember that Paul actually began the first part of chapter 3 with those very words. Look back at verse 1. He says, for this reason. And then last week we saw Paul all of a sudden, he's going in this direction where he's getting ready to pray, but then he moves into this kind of holy digression, a divine digression where he goes off and he begins to unfold again the great mystery of God in uniting all people, Jew and Gentile, together in Christ Jesus. A beautiful picture of what he's going to do to the universe through Christ. And so here, he's getting back into his prayer. And so for this reason, actually reminds us that he has been speaking about some very important truths. Everything he's been talking about up to chapter 3 is what Paul is referring to here. For this reason, for the grace that he's been speaking of, through the reconciling power of the gospel, the unifying power of Jesus Christ in the church. He brings us back to everything he's said. You see, Paul, as he thinks back to all of this doctrine that he's been explaining to the church in the first three chapters, he himself is stunned by God's grace in saving sinners. He's stunned that God could unite two seemingly impossible to unite people groups. He's stunned by God's comprehensive plan to renew his creation. And I just want to encourage you, listen, when we reflect upon God's amazing grace, both individually and corporately in the life of the church of Jesus Christ, it should lead us to get on our knees before God. It should call us to drop down in wonder and in awe to the God who has adopted us, the God who has redeemed us, the God who has forgiven us. Paul has already reminded us, listen, that Christ died for us. He died in our place, that the Spirit of God has sealed us and secured us. He's called us out of darkness to light, from death to life. He's raised us with Christ, and we are a part of his family, the church of Jesus Christ. And for this reason, Paul says, he bows his knees before the Father. Listen, church, and so should we. And so should we. See, prayer begins for Paul, and it ends for Paul in worship. That's what he's doing right here. He's worshiping what Paul knew of God caused him to drop to his knees in humble gratitude. When was the last time you found yourself falling to your knees or to your face with humble gratitude to God for what he's done for you? I love what the psalmist says. He connects this idea of worship and bowing down in Psalm 95, verses 6 and 7. He says, oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. May the disposition of our heart reflect our understanding of what he's done by his grace and for his glory, and perhaps more often may our bodies do so as well. Secondly, notice this, 
to pray with humility, we need to pray with a humble desperation. Kneeling is also a sign of desperation in Scripture. You see, when we realize that we are approaching the only one who can actually act on our behalf, who can actually truly change not only our circumstances, but change us, it gives us a proper sense of helplessness. It gives us proper perspective on our own weakness and frailty, our own insufficiency and our own inability. It's interesting, in Acts chapter 20, Paul is actually speaking to these Ephesian elders. He's spent years with them, developing them, pouring into them, loving them, doing life together with them. And as he departs from them, in in Acts chapter 20, he departs from the elders. He gives them instruction from God. He reminds them of what God has called them to do. But the word of God tells us that there, he actually weeps for them. He weeps for them, and his heart breaks for them. The text actually tells us that he actually gets down on his knees and prays for them. Why is he so desperate? Because he knows what God has asked of them. He he knows that the impossibility in one sense of the task that has been given to them. And he knows that the power to accomplish the task can only come from him. And so Paul desperately pleads for God to do what only he can do in their lives. He knows that God's power is a gift that is given And so he was desperately pleading with God to give it. Let me ask you this morning, are you approaching God with desperation? Is that a regular part of your prayer life? When you go to God in prayer, do you go with a a sense of desperation? I think oftentimes we, we go to God, maybe let me give you three separate categories. Oftentimes we go to God out of irritation. Or we go to God with this sense like, oh, fine, God, I guess I'll come to you now. I mean, now that all my plans didn't work, now that I can't fix the problem, I guess I'll go to you now. This sense of resentment because we love to fuel our own pride and our own self-sufficiency, our own sense of accomplishment and success. And so it's really an irritation to go to God and ask him for help for some of us. Some of us simply go to God out of obligation. Well, I guess I'm just supposed to. Uh, uh, all right, we've made the plans, everything. I guess we should pray about this, shouldn't we? But you see, what Paul is reminding us of here is that we need to learn to go to God out of desperation. Not out of a, I need to, simply a, I need to out of irritation or something, an ought to out of obligation, but I have to. I am desperate for God to give me what only he can give me. This must be the place our hearts are in when we come to God. God, I can't do this. I know who I am and I know who you are. So Lord, I'm gonna get low before you and I'm gonna plead with you, Father, to give me everything that is necessary to do what you have called me to do. I wonder if John 15, 5 rings true in your heart, that apart from him, uh, we can do nothing. Do you realize that you are truly helpless and powerless without God to do anything, listen, anything of eternal and spiritual value? For this reason, those words also teach us that we need to align our prayers with God's purposes. This helps fuel our desperation as well. Paul is incredibly wise in how he prays. He looks back to what he has communicated, the divine truth, the divine revelation, and he reflects on that, and then what he simply does is he prays that back to God. And so often when we pray, we're just asking God to bless our purposes and plans. Don't you find that's true in your life? I know I catch myself doing that all the time. 
I'll come up with something, I'll plan it out, and then I'll, I'll simply ask God to bless the plans that I have come up with in my life. See, what, what are God's purposes is the first question we need to ask. What might God's plans be is the first question we need to ask. You say, well, what are God's purposes? Well, I'll tell you this. I know this for sure, that God cares far more about your holiness than your comfort. And yet if you reflect on your prayers, you know what, what we're often more inclined to pray about? <laughs> Areas of comfort. Areas of comfort in our lives, and yet God in his word communicates that he cares so much more about our own personal holiness than he does about the physical comforts of life. And if you believe that, it's actually going to change the way you pray. I know this for sure, that God is passionate about building his kingdom and not yours. That's what he's been communicating already to us in Ephesians chapter one. So if you really take that in, it's going to restructure your prayer life. I know that God is on mission to bring the gospel out and to bring the outcasts in. I know that for certain. And if you believe that, it's going to change your priorities in the way you pray. You see, God wants to use us. And he wants to use us to accomplish the purposes that he has actually laid out in scripture for us. And if we believe that, that is going to make us desperate for the power we know is necessary that must come from God because it cannot come from us, amen? The more you know God's word, the more you realize what he's asking of you is not possible. Not by you. I hear way too many Christians with this kind of defeatist attitude when it comes to the life that God is calling them to live, that they read the Bible and say, that's not possible, or they say things, that I'll often hear people say things like this, I've tried that, and it just doesn't work. Listen, if it's not working, the problem's not with God, it's with who? It's with you. The answer of scripture is a definitive, yes, you can do it. Strengthened with God's power, you can be the man or woman that God is calling you to be. You can be the husband or wife that God is calling you to be. You can be the parent or the child that God is calling you to be. You can be the employee and the neighbor that God is calling you to be. Whatever God has called you to be, whatever he has revealed for you to be, guess what? God says, I can make that a reality in your life. But it begins here, church. It begins with getting on our knees humbly before God, in humble desperation. Lastly, we see Paul modeling this, a humble confidence. When he prays with humility, he prays with this humble confidence in the Lord. He shows us that we should come before God with humility, but with boldness, not arrogance, thinking that God owes us his blessing, but with humble confidence. Why? Why? Because of what he's revealed in the first three chapters, our position in Christ our union with Christ. We have been adopted in Christ Jesus, and therefore, as he said in chapter 3, verse 12, we now have access to God. We have boldness, and we can go with confidence through our faith in Jesus Christ. We march into the throne room of God, not because we are worthy, but because we march in robed in the worthy one, Jesus Christ. There's a beauty in this kind of humble confidence. There's a beauty in recognizing our position, our union with Christ. I love what Tim Keller says. He says, listen, the only person who dares wake up a king at 3 a.m. for a glass of water is a child. And then he says this, we have that kind of access. We have that kind of access to the king of kings and the lord of lords, the creator of the universe, because he is our father. 
Paul tells us that he is the father, notice this in the text there, from whom every family in heaven on earth is named. Paul is expressing here the scope and magnitude of the Father's authority and rule over all. The families of heaven and earth. He's talking about physical, earthly, human families and the family of the angels and demons. Listen, everything that was created that thinks it has some degree of authority and power ultimately lives under the great authority and power of God. I recently finished a, a biography on George Lucas, the, uh, the creator of Star Wars and Indiana Jones. Not bad stuff, huh? He had built up this massive company from the ground up. And from time to time, there were rumblings in his career of him taking his company public, you know, getting short shareholders and such like that. And those who worked for him, they, they laughed at the idea, and this was a common kind of response to that, they'd simply say there's only one shareholder around here. And the point was that this was George Lucas's company. He didn't answer to anybody. He had the supreme authority. He didn't have to go up the ladder to some higher up. He didn't have to get permission from a board of directors. He made the decisions. He did things his way. And listen, when I think of God, I think of God, listen, in much the same way, but far more benevolent. This is his universe. He is completely sovereign over it. He rules. He is in complete control. He doesn't answer to any shareholders. He doesn't run anything higher up to anyone. And listen, that means this, that we go to the very top in our prayers. Amen? We don't go through anyone. We don't go to anybody who doesn't have the power or ability to do what we're asking. We go to the one who has the supreme rule and authority. God is making it clear that he rules the universe. Everyone and everything answers to him and everyone and everything depends upon him. They all find their life in him. They all depend upon him even at this very moment. Listen, God is holding all things together by the word of his power at this very second. And the awesome thing is when we go, we have this kind of access to the Father. You know what the word of God teaches us? The word of God teaches us that God loves to give good gifts to his children. Isn't that great? especially, Luke tells us, Luke 13, in connection with the Spirit of God and the power of God. He loves to give his children the power of the Spirit of God. You know, James says this, you have not because you ask not. I can't think of a better thing to ask God for that I believe with all my heart he will give to you if you simply ask in humility and for his glory. Listen, if you come to God and say, God, give me the power to be the kind of man or woman that you have called me to be, God says, of course, my child. Let us ask. Let us ask with confidence. Paul demonstrates what it looks like to pray with great humility. Secondly, notice this, we see how to pray with great clarity. Again, this isn't the only prayer in the Bible, nor is it the only way to pray specifically, but I think what Paul prays for here should be staples of our prayer life. He gets now to the content of his prayer in 16 through 19, and there's two main requests here that we see, and a third, really, that is essentially a summation of the, the other two. John Stott points out that they are like a staircase building upon one another, rising higher and higher into the divine 
magnitude of God. Paul is praying that we experience what he has been unpacking in 1 through 3, but his exposition of 1 through 3 now turns to intercession on behalf of the church. He's also teaching us, by the way, that preaching and prayer always go together. That reading the word and hearing the word should always be connected with praying the word. It's one thing to teach it or to hear it. It's a whole other thing to experience it through inner transformation, and that is what Paul is after here. And notice this. When we pray with great clarity, here's what we do. We need increased spiritual ability. We need increased spiritual ability. The statement here in 16, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. The riches of his glory. Glory is a reflection of the essence of one's being, the summation of all someone's attributes. Basically, Paul is saying, God, I know all that you are, all of the infinite character that who, of who you are, the inexhaustible wealth of all that you are. And Lord, out of the abundance of that, give, Lord, give generously all that I need. So what is he asking for specifically? It's so clear here, isn't it? To be strengthened with power or to be strengthened with ability. And this, this needs to take place, notice what he says here, in our inner being. This is the power of the Spirit of God. It flows, he says, from the Spirit of God to our inner being. It is what infuses us and grants to us the ability to be who God has called us to be. And this idea of the inner being, it corresponds to the, the word heart in the next verse. Look at verse 17. He makes this connection, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. The heart and the inner being are the same thing in God's word. It is mission control center for your life. It is the seat of your emotions, your will. It is where all of your decisions are made. It's what you live out of. And this is the place that Paul asks God to work on in each one of us. This is how we fight sin. You want to get practical here? You want to know why you need to pray this? This right here, this is so important for your life. This is how you fight sin right here. This is how you resist temptation right here, praying for this, praying that God would do this in you. This is how you proclaim the gospel with courage and conviction right here. This is how you love others sacrificially and generously. This is how you endure trials that are beyond your wildest imaginations. This is how you resist the devil right here. Paul says, similarly in 2 Corinthians 4, verses 16 and following, he says this, so we do not lose heart, listen to what he says, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. You say, why is that so important, Paul? Why, why does it matter that the inner self be renewed day by day for this light momentary affliction? The, the, the pressure of the world, the affliction from the world, the struggles of the world, the difficulties that we all are going to face, some greater than others, but none immune. Listen, this is only possible to do so in a way that pleases God, in a way that glorifies God, and in a way that is going to be used greatly by God. Listen, when we are being renewed day by day, this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. 
You know, we have this fixation on focusing on the temporal earthly. We have this fixation on fixing the outer man. Listen, I hate to break it to you. We're all getting old and decrepit, okay? The day you are born is the day you start to die. And I don't care what cream you buy or what kind of gym membership you had, nothing is going to fix that. But your word of God tells us our priority ought to be the renewal of the inner man. I am amazed, I'm even at my, I'm convicted about this myself, at how much time I can focus on the outer man and how little time I can focus on the inner man. Isn't it amazing when you look at your life? Like we can go to the gym for hours a week and struggle to spend 15 minutes with God a week. It's staggering to me how quickly we lose sight of what is eternal and how distracted we are by what is temporal. And again, I, I understand there's a balance and, you know, I, okay, we'll get ripped for the glory of God, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> but how about we work on getting our hearts better before God? How about that be the priority? I, I found it staggering too when you just look at this prayer and when you look at all the prayers of Paul in the Bible, you want to know the one thing he never prays for? He never prays that their circumstances would be changed. Just think about that for a second. This is such a, this is such a rebuke, isn't it? We, we, so, we go to God, like that seems to be one of the only things we want to go to God for. God, just change my circumstance. Fix my spouse. Right? <laughs> Give me a new job. Give me a better home. Give me this. Give me that. Give me, give me, give me, give me, give me, give me. Change all of this, Lord. But what God is so focused on, listen, I love this, and what Paul prays for is this. Don't change the stuff out there, Lord. Change what's in here. We don't need a renovation of our circumstances. We need a renovation of our hearts regularly. How often is it our prayer? Listen. How often is our prayer, God, change me? Change me. Start here, Lord. And you know what Paul depicts in 2 Corinthians 4 and places like Romans 7 where he talks about the struggle with the flesh and the spirit and how often we fail. What he depicts here is that the believer is helpless. Listen, helpless without God's power. And the fact that Paul is praying for it testifies to the reality that we are not always experiencing it. He said, I thought the power of God was within me. Yes. But we do not always access the power that God has given us. And this is our greatest need on a daily basis, the power of God's spirit working in our inner being. You say, why? why? Why is that the case? Look at verse 17 again. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. This is the result of being strengthened with his power in your inner being. It essentially is the same thing. So that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. Paul uses the language here of the inner man and the heart. Again, he connects the two. The strength that he's speaking of is the indwelling Christ within us. And by the way, that's the same thing as the indwelling spirit. Christ dwells in us. God dwells in us through the spirit. 
And the result of him dwelling there is power beyond our wildest imaginations. You say, I thought Christ was already in my heart. Yes, but Paul is speaking here of more than just dwelling in the sense that we are maybe inclined to think of the word dwelling. He is talking, listen, he is talking about Christ ruling our hearts. I mean, full out rulership of our house. You see, the more we operate in our own strength, the more we are declaring to Jesus, there's only room for one ruler here, Jesus, and it ain't you, okay? That's what you need to think. The next time you're looking at your life and you say, man, I am prayerless in my life. Here's what you're really saying to God. Jesus, you can't have rulership over this area of my life. You can kind of hang out here but you can't have full power in my life. You can't have full control in my life. You know, we wonder why we struggle so much. We wonder why, why we're often, like, we're just struggling to even just make any progress in the Christian life. I believe that the vast majority of the time it's connected to this right here. We fail to understand what it means to give Christ all of us on a daily basis, moment by moment basis. You see, being strengthened by his power is a result of our embrace of weakness and frailty. Now, this goes against the grain of our culture and our world. Our world prizes self-sufficiency, the self-made man or woman, the strength that you have in and of yourself. And the Bible says, if that's the way you want to live, listen, you can rule your heart, but it's not going to go well. The Bible says weakness and frailty is the way to true strength and power. And it's a result of surrender and submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. It's a declaration. Some of you need to hear this this morning. Some of you are, are not, some of you are here, you're not saved yet. This is what it is to be a follower of Christ. Right here. It is to lay yourself down before the Lord God Almighty and say, I am not the king. I am not in charge. I surrender and submit to you as my Lord and my King. I see that I cannot be my own Savior. I cannot fix my life. I cannot grant myself eternal life. Only you can, and the way you've done it is through the cross of Jesus Christ. The King became a servant, suffered and died in my place so that my sins could be forgiven and I could be ransomed and restored. You see, this is an invitation for Jesus to sit on the throne of your heart and to stay there. This word dwell is such an important word, and Paul could have chosen a number of different words, but he chose this one specifically. The word is in contrast to simply inhabiting your heart. It means to settle down. It has in mind a sense of permanency versus a short-sighted or short-lived residency allowing Jesus to dwell, to make his home in our hearts. You know, it is possible. Some of us say, well, Jesus is in my heart. Yes, yes, he is, if you're a follower of Christ. It is possible to have someone live in your house, but not really live in your house, right? You know, kind of to stick to their own room, never come out, never be involved in the day-to-day -day life of the family, never be involved in the day-to-day -day fellowship, never be involved in the day-to-day decision-making, planning, events, never involved in the joy. You see, that's what some of us have done with Jesus. We've kind of locked him away in a room under the stairs instead of giving him the supreme seat of authority. 
And there are some of us in this place this morning who need to let Jesus out and let Jesus into every nook and cranny of our hearts and say, fine, Lord, it's all yours. It's all yours. Just take it, please. Some of us need to give him access to our marriages, our kids, our finances, or our decisions about entertainment or education or careers. Some of us have been sitting on the throne in that area of our heart. And God's word is teaching us this morning that in our prayers, the more we live in humble dependence, the more he dwells in our hearts and sweeps every room in our house clean. Renovating us to look far different than we could ever have thought or imagined, far better than we could have ever hoped or dreamed, not in our strength, but because of his. And next, as we consider praying with clarity, Paul calls us to the need to increase spiritual stability. That's what we need desperately in this world and sometimes in our lives that are so chaotic. The opening expression here, Paul says, that I pray that you being rooted and grounded in love is essentially a prayer for our spiritual stability. Again here, Paul mixes metaphors. He loves to do this. Rooted, the idea is agricultural. Roots that go deep into the soil and grounded is architectural, but their significance is perfectly parallel to one another. You see, like trees, our lives are to send down roots deep and wide into the soil of love. And like buildings, the foundations of our lives here on earth are to be deep, solid foundations of love. And if we are properly rooted and properly constructed on a foundation of love, nothing will be able to shake us. This is particularly important because remember, Paul is writing this from prison. If anybody should be shaken by their circumstances and questioning whether or not they're secure and stable in the Lord, and if God really loves them, it's Paul. I'm doing your work, Lord. Why am I sitting in a prison cell? And yet what Paul says is this, listen, whatever's going on around you, however shaky it may may look, listen, your stability and your security is not in your circumstances. It's anchored in the love of God in Jesus Christ. This is not, by the way, our love for him. It's his love for us. That's what he's calling us to be settled in, to understand and to be anchored in. The idea here is that we will know and deeply experience God's love for us. To know it better each day. Why? Because then we can live a crucified life of love for him. Let's not put the cart before the horse. We say, we wanna, I want to love you more today, God. If you want to love God more today, listen, you need to dwell more in his love first. This is what Paul says in Galatians 2, verse 20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, listen to this, who loved me and gave himself up for me. You see, that is the foundation that Paul goes back to in his life. All the time, you know, when he thinks back to his sinful past, when he thinks back to his sinful present, in the moment as he's wrestling through sin, you want to know the thing that, that reminds him of how secure he is in the grip of God's grace? It's the love of Christ. It's how much Christ loves him. Listen, the, the love of Christ is so much infinitely greater than the depths of your sin. And Paul constantly is calling us back to this. And this is where we look to the cross to see the ultimate depths 
and wonders of God's love. He said, how much, how much did Jesus love me? Look to the cross. He was willing to take your punishment. He was willing to die your death. He was willing to pay your price also that you could be redeemed and reconciled back to your Father. And his call is to go beyond the superficialities, beyond mere intellectual knowledge and understanding of his love. It's meant to be tasted and experienced. You know, somebody can describe to you how amazing a Big Mac tastes. They can tell you how juicy it is, and man, just taking that bite, they can describe it so perfectly to you so that your mind is blown as it should be when you think about a Big Mac. But it is a whole other thing to hold it in your hands and to sink your teeth into it. I don't eat that many Big Macs, okay? I used to. I've grown, right? God's changing me too. But you know, when it comes to God's love for us, some of us have heard it described, some of us have, have heard it said a million times, even from the front, but some of us have never truly experienced it or tasted the sweetness of it. We can talk about it, we can describe it theologically or doctrinally, but when we talk about it, our hearts don't ache with passion, they don't burn with passion and love and desire, our eyes don't fill with tears when we think about the sweetness of God's love towards us because we've never really known the depths of it. This is what Paul is calling us to. Listen, to live the Christian life faithfully, you must live in wonder and awe of the love of God for you in Christ Jesus. There's no other way to do it. You have to get back there. Why do you think we celebrate? Why do you think Jesus gave us the ordinance of the Lord's table to constantly bring us back to his love and grace, to constantly refresh us and to remind us and cause us to contemplate it and to dwell there? We, we say this often, listen, we never move away from the cross of Christ. We only go deeper into it. One of the things... Uh, I love what Paul here is he tries to give us the ability to expand our mental comprehension of the dimensions of God's love. Do you see that there in verse 17? He says, be rooted and grounded in love that you may have strength in verse 18 to comprehend. See, he wants us to know it, to understand it. With all the saints, what is the breadth and length and height and depth? One of the things I, I, I really enjoy about young children is that they try to quantify everything, right? I remember my son, in particular, regularly trying to figure out the size of things and how, how big is God, Dad? Like, is God as big as a truck? Is God bigger than a whale? Like, how strong is God, Dad? Is he stronger than a tractor? Is he stronger than you? That one blew his mind. <laughs> or just, Dad, I love you this much. Like, that's it, your arms are tiny. <laughs> you know, it's hard to quantify some things. When it comes to the love of God, it's impossible. When it comes to describing how much God loves you, it is impossible to fully comprehend the magnitude of his love for you. The measurements that Paul gives here are, are simply poetic expressions that describe his infinite, inexhaustible, incomparable love. 
I love how Augustine framed this. He says this, just listen to this. He says, his love is wide enough to embrace the world, long enough to last forever. Charles Spurgeon says about that. He says, it's so long that your old age cannot wear it out. So long your continual tribulation cannot exhaust it. Your successive temptations shall not drain it dry. Like eternity itself, it knows no bounds. It's high enough to take sinners to heaven. It is deep enough to take Christ to the very depths to reach the lowest sinner. It is a love that is knowable in one sense and explainable in one sense and to one degree, yet it must be experienced because it is inexhaustible. It's God's power that enables us to grasp the love of Christ in greater and greater ways to look at the incarnation, to look at the cross, and to say, listen, no matter how old you are, no matter how long you've been in the church and been walking with Jesus, to look at those things and say, God, give me more, help me see more, give me greater clarity. And God's so faithful to answer. But here's the key. This is not to be our solitary, individualistic, isolated occupation. Did you catch what Paul adds in here? Together with all the saints. Remember, Paul is speaking to the church here. I love what John Stott says about this. He says, it needs the whole people of God to understand the whole love of God. All the saints together, Jews and Gentiles, men and women, young and old, black and white, with all their varied backgrounds and experiences. You see, to understand the depths of God's love, we actually need each other. Because it's in here, in this place, in and through our lives, as we gather together, as we sing together, as we sit under the word together. See, it happens in this context. It happens when we meet to pray. It happens when we observe it in our community, as we live it out. It happens as we share stories and testimonies of God's faithfulness and kindness. It happens when we discuss it and study it in the context of this covenant community. We need an increased spiritual maturity that comes from understanding in a greater way the love of Christ. Thirdly, here for clarity, we need an increased spiritual maturity. And this is really what Paul sums up for us in verse 19. He says, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Filled, I love that, just think about those words, filled with all the fullness of God. You see, it's through him and his love that the believer is made complete, mature. That's that idea that Paul is getting at here, the idea of being filled to the fullness of God. That's what Paul is talking about, spiritual maturity. If you just look over to chapter 4, I won't spend much time on this, but notice what he says here, the process that God is in to, verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Listen to this. Until we all attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature, listen to this, of the fullness of Christ. That's what God is doing here. He's maturing us. He's growing. This is why you need the church. You can't get this alone outside of the church.
We cannot be mature unless we know and experience the power and love of God in Christ together. And though we are already, listen, filled to the fullness, Paul has said that in chapter one already, we are to grow up into him until we reach fullness. We are to become practically what we already are positionally. In Colossians, Paul says that God's fullness dwells in Christ, and we have come to that fullness as Christ dwells in us. We are to be filled with God because to be filled with him is to be filled with all of his moral excellence and purity, all of his perfection and all of his power, and we need the fullness of God's love and power in order to be like Christ. So let that be our pursuit, and let that lead to our praise, and that is exactly where Paul ends on a note of praise. Finally, we see this. We need to pray with great expectation. Paul begins and he ends his prayer with praise, this incredible doxology. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us. Paul piles up words for God's divine power here. He just, he can't say enough about how massive this power is that's available. Now to him who is able, but well, just wait, just wait. It gets better than that. To do far more. That's not it. Abundantly. Hold on, there's still more. All that we could ask or think. This, this is striking. His ability far surpasses not only what we verbalize in prayer, but also beyond our wildest imaginations. Listen, this is, we need to get this. We need, I, I need to get this. Lord, help me. Listen, listen. God can do more in response to one prayer than we can do in 100 years of planning and plotting. He's that powerful. So help us, Lord, to stop playing God. Help us, to think that our, help us to think that our power is nothing compared to yours, Lord. Help us to believe that. Listen, do you believe that he is the only sovereign one? Do you believe that he raised Jesus from the dead and placed him as head over the church? Do you believe that he put all things under the feet of Jesus? If so, then pour your heart out to him, believing that he is able. He has already done the impossible. We need a vision of God that increases our faith in God's greatness, and the best way to do this is to fill our minds and our hearts with God's word. This power, Paul says, is at work within us. And in this context, it's unimaginable, even, listen, even for the angels and demons, that the Jews and Gentiles could function together in one body. It's always striking to consider the group of people that God calls together as a body. We were walking in here this morning and joking around with uh, some of our friends as we were walking in the doors and I turned to my, my, my daughter and I said, this church is full of crazy people, isn't it? To which she said, you're the craziest of them all, Dad. We're just, we're just a bunch of messes, aren't we? And yet God takes us and all of our messes and all of our imperfections, of all of our differences, and he begins to meld us together and unite us together in such beautiful peace and harmony. Yeah, there's bumps in the road. Yeah, it's rocky at times. Yeah, we hurt one another. But in God's grace, we are displaying to the world 
the power of God as we live together, as we function together, and as we shine the light of the gospel together. As the fullness of God is formed in us by the increasing knowledge of Christ's love for us, the power of God's Spirit is being manifested in us so that God's glory might be displayed through us. And when this power is at work in our church, if God can unite us, there's no limits to what He can accomplish through us. You know, I look at this, and it's just, it's a stark reminder, listen, that there is a bold expectation here on the part of Paul that we must learn to embrace in our prayers and in our fellowship together. Paul is convinced, unwavering in his belief that if God's power is unleashed in God's people, that God will do far more abundantly than all that we could ask or think. He believes that with all of his heart. There's no question. He's not wavering on this in any way. Is that your confident expectation when you go and grab hold of the throne of grace? Is that your expectation that that you go to God and you believe he can take you and take all that you're going through and he can change you and make you more like Jesus Christ? Do you believe that with all your heart? You know, some of us pray with such a lack of faith when God has promised to do this already. We, we pray with such fear, and we're so, we're, we're so kind of uh, scared to, to ask God for what he says. Just ask, and I will give it to you. Believe in faith. Pray with faith. When we are praying God's will and God's word, let us not shrink back from doing so, but let us grab a hold to the throne of his grace with great boldness. While we like, we come, excuse me, like a, a meek, humble lamb, let us also come like a bold and courageous lion. For our God longs for his children to pray like this because he longs to put his mighty power on display through us. You say, why? Why? Verse 21. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. God wants to put his glory on display, and God will get all the glory when he takes a weak people like us and does amazing things. In the church, it's where his glory is being put on display. In Christ Jesus, the head of his church. Say, for how long? Forever and ever and ever. All for his power, the church will sing for ages and ages to come, past, present, and future, people gathered together in one multitude to praise the glorious grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Forever in Christ Jesus, forever the Lamb of God who was slain, forever God will be glorified in Christ who fell to his knees in the Garden of Gethsemane, who drank the cup of wrath that we receive, the cup of grace. Forever the one who has reconciled us to the Father and to one another and who dwells in our hearts through faith by the Spirit. To God be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus forever. So the next time you think about doing something great, some great work for God, get on your knees and ask God to do a great work in and through you. We must begin to see prayer not as preparation for our great work, but as the great work itself. Let's pray. Father, we pray. Lord, in line with all that we have just seen and beheld in your word, 
Humbly we come to you with hearts prostrate, bowed low, Lord, asking, pleading, petitioning you to strengthen us with your power in our inner being. Oh God, would you grant to us the strength to be changed and molded and shaped into the likeness of our Savior Jesus Christ? Would you change, Lord, the attitudes of our heart? Would you change our loves and affections, Lord? Father, would you do so by anchoring us, Lord, in the love of Christ. Father, we pray this morning that as we look to the cross and as we sing about the cross of Jesus Christ, even now that our hearts would be overwhelmed, Lord, with a sense of gratitude and love for you as we see the inexhaustible love that you have for us. God, we want to be built up, matured into the fullness of Christ the fullness of God in us. And so, Lord, we pray that you would do this in this place. We humbly submit to you our hearts right now, Lord. We ask, Lord, that you would rule and reign in every area, in every room in our house. Lord, would you do abundantly more than we could even ask or think? Do it for your glory. Do it for the praise of your great name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.